Today on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. It's really interesting that the same genetic risk factors play a role for non-alcohol as well as alcohol-associated liver disease. And I think it helps a lot to know these genetic risk factors and also determine them because it helps a patient to understand why he's especially at risk and why he should be more careful not to share the same way of living as a neighbor who, because perhaps of a different genetic background, could do this without any harm to the liver. One of the biggest problems in diagnostics in general, and you can say about biomarkers in general, is people don't define the, the use population. Like that, That's always sort of an afterthought. So it's very, very critical that you define exactly who this test is intended to be used on and who it should not be used on. And I, and I think that discipline is often lost. This is really a, an exceptional and exciting thing that they have put together. From the very first description of it as a multidisciplinary meeting, you recognize it's different. You feel welcomed. You feel invited in. You feel like they want and value you as part of the meeting. And so that shift in culture in hepatology is just wonderful to see. And I, I give a lot of credit and accolades to, to the easel governing board. This week, close to 10,000 stakeholders from across the global hepatology community are convening virtually for the Digital International Liver Congress 2021, a four-day meeting with well over 100 sessions on a broad range of liver-related topics. To set the stage for this meeting, Roger Green shares three different perspectives on the Congress by interviewing Professor Thomas Berg, the incoming Secretary General of EASL, patient and patient advocate Donna Cryer, President and CEO of the Global Liver Institute, and Sunil Hosmain, Global Director of Diagnostics for GenFit. Hear their views and what they anticipate from ILC 2021, this week, all on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. When you listen to this, Easel will already have had its first day of postgraduate courses and other events in the books. But as I record it, that's all due to start tomorrow morning. This week, instead of a typical episode for our Wednesday night drop, we are including three interviews with people, each of whom has a different and interesting perspective on the digital ILC meeting that starts on Wednesday and that we will be covering Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. First, Dr. Thomas Berg, the Secretary General of Easel, was good enough to sit down and spend 15 or 20 minutes with me going over what makes him so excited about this meeting. We had an interruption. I was recording at a friend's home, and their Airedale ran into the room and knocked over all the recording equipment mid-interview. You may hear a reference to that. And uh, one of these days, I most might post the video of that moment as our greatest visual blooper on this podcast. So that's one. Second and third are two good friends of the podcast from different points of view. Donna Cryer, President and CEO of Global Liver Institute, will talk with me and with you about, from a patient and patient advocate point of view, what she finds so exciting in this meeting. And third, Sunil Hosmain, the global head of diagnostics at GenFit and our most reliable commercial commentator, will talk with me about what he finds interesting in this meeting as a self-professed science nerd and also as a commercial guy. So if you started to listen 
to Digital ILC already or to our podcasts, this will give you an understanding of how observers viewed the meeting beforehand and what the highest levels of easel envisioned and were so proud about as they planned and organized it. If not, it will put you in a frame of mind to listen, knowing different ways that people can view the benefit of this meeting. In any case, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, you can join our conversations on LinkedIn and Facebook. Or if there's a day left and you'd like to hear a live recording, we have information on the website and all over LinkedIn and Twitter about how you can get an invitation to listen live. Maybe ask a question, uh, maybe even get to see another fun blooper like the dog running over the screen. You take care. Enjoy these interviews. I'll be back with a comment at the end. First, Professor Thomas Berg, incoming Secretary General of EASL. Good morning, Dr. Berg. How are you today? I'm very good. Good morning. Good morning. So next week promises to be a very exciting meeting, I think. Absolutely. You know, this is the International Liver Congress. It's our annual meeting of the ESL, and it's for us and the hepatology community you know, like an inventory of where we currently stand in our knowledge of the understanding of disease mechanism and in particular also questions of optimized diagnostics and treatment. So when you say diagnostics and treatment, where would you say the balance this year of the content is in terms of diagnostics and treatment? More on one, more on the other, or would you say about half of each? I think it's very difficult to say, you know, because you quite often need a very good diagnostic in order to, to know whom to treat and how to And you know, there is a really emerging field of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as you know, where 25% of the world's population are affected by this disease. And you may argue whether it's a disease if 25% of the world population are affected by it, especially in this situation. It's it's not to find the, the needle in the haystack, but it's really to see who is at risk of progressing. And here you need a more specific diagnostic. And we will have very exciting and interesting data how to find those being at risk of disease progression. Interesting you should mention that. So first of all, I'm old enough, you might not be, that I recall back in the late 1980s and 1990s when focus first shifted towards cholesterol. And the idea was that by the correct definition of hypercholesterolemia as compared to what they were using then, which is 300 milligrams per uh, deciliter, roughly a similar level of population, at least in the U.S., met that standard of hypercholesterolemia. But with focus and education, over time, those numbers were able to come down. One of the things I've been interested in for fatty liver when I've looked at this particular conference is, is papers that focus not on, neither on diagnostics nor on medications per se, but on non-pharmacologic therapies. Anything in that category that you think is particularly interesting or important happening here? Yeah, well, we'll see many data related to non-pharmacological intervention in, in patients with fatty liver disease. So there, and also from a public health perspective, I think is to know the risk factors better. This is certainly something that would help. And there's also a very interesting study actually coming from the U.S., looking on food in, in insecurity and that this may play a really important role. And I think we were not really aware of this. So all the knowledge coming from, from public health issues and really help us to better control this pandemic. And I think we can call it a pandemic and also to educate the public and our patients. So it's interesting you mentioned that because what we did on our podcast this past week is to identify presentations we thought were likely to be of particular interest. And that was one that I selected personally. I, I, it's, it, the logic is not hard 
you know, we talk about a blinding flash of the obvious, which is something that you might not have known. But once you see it, you can't believe you didn't always know it. And I saw the words food insecurity. And I said, well, of course, food insecure people eat for calories inexpensively. And inexpensive calories tend to be uh, omega-6 fats, sugars, and processed flours and things like that. And if you take all those and you put them together, that will be a problem for every metabolic condition known to, known to medicine. Absolutely. Yep, that's the case. And then if you take and you combine them with now the food insecurity studies in the U.S. and I haven't seen the data yet. But if you think of underserved populations in the world or lower socioeconomic populations in the world that have the most important issues around fatty liver, they tend to combine those kinds of diets, food insecurity and PMPLA3. Um, so I'll really be fascinated to see what this paper says. For, for that reason. Yeah, and I think you also mentioned a very good point, and this is the genetic background of yeah, many liver diseases, but especially also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but also the alcohol-associated diseases. And you know, quite often you can really distinguish. It's not only one category alone, and the other is only alcohol-associated. Quite often risk factors can be combined or can come together. And it's really interesting that the same genetic risk factors play a role for non-alcoholic as well as alcohol-associated liver disease. And I think it helps a lot to know these genetic risk factors and also determine them because it helps a patient to understand why he's especially at risk and why he should be more careful not to share the same way of living as a neighbor who, because perhaps of a different genetic background, could do this without any harm to the liver. It's, it's an excellent point. One of the things to me about genetics of the disease, in 1969 in the U.S., then-President Richard Nixon declared what he called the war on cancer. And I think it was believed at the beginning that they would find one magic bullet and that that was going to cure cancer. And then it turned out over time, right, that cancers were not the same. And then it turned out over time that breast cancer was not one disease, but several. And the, I think the real progress in treating in, in oncology starts when you can identify all the different dimensions of the disease and how to treat it. So I note in your comment that you feel we're making a lot of progress against that for fatty liver. How much further do you think we're going to have to go before we understand in enough detail that we can design and develop drugs that are successful in treating the different genetic situations or permutations of fatty liver? Yeah, that's a very good point, and I couldn't agree more. It's fair to say that in a way we are only in the beginning to really have a clear clustering or that we are able to make really clear diagnosis what type of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is and what is really the main driver. And this could be also related to the fact that we have seen that all the very interesting drugs that are currently studied, and I can tell you there will be really very exciting data and promising data also being presented with new drugs in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Nevertheless, we have to realize that very, very big phase three trials, many of them failed to show the significance they wanted to show. Uh, one explanation to that is that really we perhaps mixing up different etiologies under the umbrella of a histological diagnosis, meaning fatty liver, and of course we could exclude a high level of alcohol intake. So it's, for me, it's quite clear that there are different forms of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The most prominent one, the Celine, Nash or Nafold, you know, people being not overweight, having not the typical risk factors like diabetes, diabetes, and so on. And then we have the typical metabolic-associated muffled-like, where obesity, metabolic things play a role. But I think there could be also other forms, more genetically driven, and so on and so on. And perhaps we need more specific 
treatments according to the underlying etiology. So one thing I should mention to you that I had not, because it just came up, this interview will not be posted until after the embargo has lifted. So if you're comfortable talking in a little more detail about some of the specific papers that we'll see, you can feel comfortable doing that because this will not drop until about 10 o'clock Eastern time Wednesday night or four in the morning Thursday in Central Europe. Perhaps I can mention several fields of interest. And we talked a lot about public health and therefore I Perhaps I can continue on public health data. And we have one that is related to whether countries have alcohol, public health policies on alcohol consumption in place or not. And this was done on a population level and shows really very interesting data that it's not by prohibiting something, but just by having policies in place, this may have a huge impact. So this is certainly something people might be interested in. What kind of policy might that entail? Yeah, well, this could be just that you have a limiting drinking age in place or a non-alcohol driving policy, you know, quite simple thing, but already these may affect the overall um, alcohol consumption on the population level. Um, well, you know, viral hepatitis is, was and is still a very important burden uh, globally, especially hepatitis B. You know, there's the WHO um, hepatitis elimination program that we should reduce mortality, morbidity of these diseases until 2030. And here it comes to the pandemic and how the pandemic of coronavirus affected healthcare programs and also the WHO hepatitis elimination program. Again, also very nice data from the US explaining how with the start of the pandemic, the care of the patient and the, the elimination targets were influenced or were affected. So when it comes to treatment, I think there's a huge interest in cure, curative treatment for hepatitis B. You may call it a race for cure because there are really many companies involved with really highly sophisticated drugs. Also, if you like, like genetically targeting replication steps with certain um, RNA interference methods and, and other direct antivirals. And you will see the effect on lowering HBS antigen levels. We have first, not really long term, but at least one year data. So more to come and more and more showing us how the path to cure will evolve in, in the next couple of years. An interesting study also for children with standard treatments. These are the nucleoside, nucleotide analogs. But so far, so far, children with hepatitis B were not really studied. And if you treat very young children, there's a concern that treatment may affect the growth, you know, because it had, could have side effects on the bone. And there we have the first phase three study in young children also addressing this issue. And this is certainly also a highlight from the ILC. Very exciting. One of the things I know is that last year, you folks did not have a lot of time to do this, but put together, I thought, a really excellent interactive platform. And I've been told that the platform this year is going to be far superior and have some really interesting elements. Are you comfortable talking about that a little bit? Yes, of course. You know, we are, of course, we are ambitious as a European liberal organization. And we want, of course, provide our members and the delegates uh, yeah, the best service and, and the best experience in a time, in a challenging time where we can't meet. And of course, we are eagerly waiting, coming back together because, you know, savoring signs in a face-to-face -face atmosphere is, is certainly something different, you know, and all the creativity starts from there. But therefore, last year, the, the platform 
was a bit like a virtual reality. So it looked very nice, but it has a limited level of interactivity. Now, perhaps on the first glance, it looked more like a website, but you're able now really to connect with your peers to find exactly where Theo was looking so you can directly interact. And then we have a much broader live sessions with live studios. We are broadcasting from Geneva and there are three to four of these live studio sessions where we will discuss with experts, international experts, but also with patient organization and so on, the, the highlights of the day also to allow interaction and that I always call it what you normally do on the floor when you're in a meeting, you ask your peer, well, how did you like this presentation? What's your takeout? And I think we want really to help to get this type of interaction. That's a question, what was shown? What is really the meaning? Where perhaps also some limitations of these studies? What should be the next step? Interestingly enough, this podcast is going to try doing something similar. We're not recording at the same time as the studio sessions, but we will be inviting anybody who sends us an email address, we will send them an invitation to come and watch our recording in live. I can promise you and them that we will not have large dogs overrunning me while I'm trying to speak with folks at those podcasts. But exactly the same thing. People can ask questions and they can actually come on the podcast one at a time to ask the question, uh, ask a follow-up, and then move on to the next question. So uh, I'm excited about that for us. And I think for you folks, that that should be fantastic. So people will be able, people will be able to, when they, when they interact with the studio sessions, will they be interacting by voice, by picture, or just sending in written questions? Yes, this would be by... So we have a certain number of experts, and this could be up to five, six there on the screen, and we are talking to them, but uh, the other delegates, they can send messages on, on different platforms. They even can send it by Twitter, and we will forward it to the studio. We hope to do that in a year, but this is the first time we're trying live audience. We will actually have people come on on audio. So if you were to listen and you had a question for Vlad Ratsu, for example, example, a session that Vlad is at. You could literally come on and you could ask Vlad and Vlad could give you a, an answer. And you could debate with Vlad for a couple of minutes. I, when, when we say debate, I think of Vlad, he's very good at that and, and a fantastic guest. Let's go, in wrapping up, I want to go back to fatty liver and ask a couple specific questions. Okay. For the fatty liver treatment community, if you had to predict, what do you think will be the most important lessons they will take out of this meeting, either because of specific papers or because of an overall field? Perhaps it could be both. You know, I think what we see from meeting to meeting that the picture becomes more clear, you know, in the beginning it might be more diffuse. And I think it, it becomes more clear what type of drugs, which classes are most likely to be very effective. And we have classes having a major effect on the fat on the liver, but it's less prominent what the scarring of the liver, the fibrosis progression might be, and other with a very strong effect also on fibrosis. And so the question might be also in the future whether we have to combine these drugs, and it could be likely. But I think the, the other very important part is really to understand the public health issues. And I very much believe in, in prevention. And, you know, if you have a fatty liver and overweight starting in childhood, and you will be diagnosed with the age of 40, then perhaps it's very difficult to change it. So early intervention, I think it's, it's, it's quite important. 
And then there's really the concern also of a long-term cancer risk. And we see that now the main driver, not only for advanced liver disease, but also for cancer, is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And unfortunately, this may occur even in patients without cirrhosis. So having a mild fatty liver, but nevertheless, this is the driver for cancerogenesis. And this is really a concern also to see who these people are and their initiatives really to better understand how fatty liver disease is associated with cancer development, even without advanced liver disease. In an interesting way, you brought me back to the next question I wanted to ask, which was I noticed there's a, there are some litmus presentations in this meeting. And uh, I, if, in fact, we're going to be looking to diagnose not only for advanced cirrhosis, but also for liver issues, I expect we're going to have to make much better use of non-invasive testing. And I, I noticed that there's a fair amount of presentation here about litmus and about the consortium work and other things having to do with non-invasive testing. And I was wondering if there's anything worth commenting on that. Well, I think we will be only effective in managing this pandemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and, and finding the patient in need of treatment if we have very good uh, non-invasive markers that are allowed to make a diagnosis that in this patient, most likely a progressive disease, he needs medical treatment treatment. And then, and this is exactly as important, then you need markers helping you um, to decide whether the treatment is successful. Because it's quite likely that we will have different compounds available in a couple of years from now. And if there's not a response, let's say after six months, perhaps you have to switch to another drug. So it both is very important to find the right patient with an indication for treatment, but also then to have biomarkers allowing to show you that now the patient is on the safe side. Because because it's not really realistic and it's certainly not the wish of all the patients that we have to do liver biopsies as need to be done in clinical trials. There's a different situation and also from a legal or an approval perspective, you need this in the beginning. But when it comes to a licensed drug, then we need non-invasive tests. In closing, is there anything else you would like to say to the people who will be listening to this podcast about the meeting and what you hope they'll take away from it? I very much would like to welcome you. I think we have an outstanding meeting. We have also very interesting symposia related to some topics. And I can tell you that we will have new data on HTC treatment. We have, for the first time, a study evaluating a new device in acute and chronic liver disease and liver failure predicting the HCC risk also after hepatitis C virus treatment, a very large a new study also with non-invasive biomarkers. So there's a lot to come. And also don't forget the rare diseases. There's more and more interest in these rare diseases. New treatments are coming, genetically driven treatments. So there's really a lot to, to explore. Sounds like a fantastically exciting meeting. Thank you so much for your time today. And I hope at some point we can have you come on the podcast as one of our guests when I'm in studio and you can hear me clearly and no dogs and any of that stuff. Uh, again, thanks for your time, and I look forward to a great meeting next week. Bye-bye now. Thank you very much, Roger. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Next, Sunil Hosmain, Global Director of Diagnostics for GenFit, brings a commercial perspective. So we're here today with our good friend Sunil Hosmain, and Sunil's been with us on and off through our last 80 episodes. Usually uh, when he comes on, it's from his perspective as Global Head of Diagnostics at GenFit, which puts him kind of inside and a little bit removed. And he gets to give us a broad perspective as someone who's bringing product to market and has a sense of where the shape of everything might be going, and has also worked in pharmaceuticals and liver space, and has worked at Ecosense. So he's pretty well seen the whole thing. Hey, Sunil, how are you doing? 
doing this evening? Doing great, Roger. Has been a while, but great to great to be back on, and pleasure to be speaking with you. Always fun. So, when you look through this, when you look through the agenda for this meeting, are there two or three particular things that jump out at you, either in terms of presentations that excite you, or elements of how the meeting is themed and set up that you think are particularly striking? It's a great question. There's always a mix there for me. Part of my my interests lie in some emerging data that's that's been released or that's been hinted at coming up until the conference that you know we've only gotten glimpses of. So for example, one of those data sets has been things like the FGF 21 assets, in particular that study by Akira and Serotics, just wanting to dive deeper and get a better sense of how that data is looking, because that, that's a potentially very impactful product that could come to market at some point. Also very much interested in diving deeper into the NGM data and, and better understanding and unpacking what happened with regards to the histology data as well as the, the non-invasive biomarkers. So from a therapeutic standpoint, always wanting to dig deeper and to better understand some of these mechanisms. But I'm, I'm actually very interested in how the, the conference is kind of evolving thematically. From my experience, easel has always been kind of more pronounced in terms of non-invasive technologies in, in NASH. That's generally been the case compared to AASLD uh, over the course of the several, past several years. I, I think that's still true now. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't quantified kind of with the content that's there, but it seems like there's a heavy focus there and emergence of more things from, from an AI machine learning basis. So looking to kind of expand my knowledge there. Not as familiar with some of these emerging research, but very promising area. Yeah, so it's interesting you should start with the Frux Furman. When we've done the two preview episodes up until now, we've not been able to break the embargo. So we can only talk about the titles. But Stephen, who is presenting the Frux Furman cirrhosis data at the late breaker on Saturday, when he was on the whichever preview episode we, we got to it on, made the rather specific point of saying, look, it's not a lot of patients and I can't talk about it, but you want to see it. And looks like it may be the first, it's a small study, but probably more promising for cirrhotics than anything we've seen to date. It could be potentially a watershed moment for the field. And I say that because for those of us who've been in the field for some time and, and we do onboarding and, and we, we train our associates as they come into the field, we always talk about, I always have this slide up and it talks about kind of this progression of the disease starting from healthy livers all the way to cirrhosis. And you're always explaining, you know, there's this kind of reversibility of disease or there's kind of this, you have progression, you have regression, and, and it's sort of moving back, ebb and flowing as it's going forward. And the one thing that we always say is it's really unclear whether you can reverse cirrhosis. Like that that could be the, the point of no return. And that, that's generally how we talk about it. And now you have at least some preliminary data. Yes, it's in a small data set, but a zero, if I recall the numbers properly, zero percent, uh, you know, fibrosis reversal in the F4. And I think it was like 30% or 33% in the, maybe in the highest dose arm. I, I, I don't remember if there's a dose effect. I don't think we've seen anything like that. And yes, it's preliminary, but in that, and that's why I'm, I'm so interested in seeing these these results. I want to see whether, you always want to look at the duality. You, you want to look at the histology and, and what's that showing, but you always want to look at all the biochemistry and the non-invasive markers and seeing if it's telling you one, one you know, one story, one, one story in totality. And I, I don't think we got a lot of the details in the, in the press release and in some of the presentation materials that's publicly available. So I'm looking to kind of better understand. So I, I understand his statement in the sense you're kind of like trying to temper expectations, but you don't really see a lot of truly new science coming out. And I think this is, this is one that, that will tell us both a lot about the mechanism, but then the, the, even the, the plausibility of achieving some benefit in cirrhotics. I think that's right. There's a rather interesting commercial angle to this. The, the medical angle, clearly important, right? Cirrhosis is the place at which people are in one of many directions, either a death's door or about to undergo 
undergo some very painful and expensive stuff in their life. And if there were a way to reverse that, then then that would be that would be just a fantastic advance. For, for the hepatology community. One of the things we've talked about recently on the podcast a bunch is the idea that therapy over time will break into acute therapy and maintenance therapy. And that the whole idea of acute therapies would be therapies that could peel F4 back to three or two and could have a relatively fast impact on F3. And those are likely to be expensive. They're likely to be injectable. They're likely to have side effects. They may have side effects associated with them. And then if you get somebody back into F2, you can start dealing with therapies that are less expensive or oral or have higher safety programs. I think you can argue that resmeterom and in, in the phase three data that they're going to be showing here, from what I can see of it, and, and lanafibrinor, which is a little further back the track, are two drugs that are far enough along that it's realistic to think that they may fill slots in the maintenance space. Question's been who's going to fill a spot in the acute space and was it actually doable? People have contended for a while to me that compensated cirrhosis could be reversed. It wasn't until you got to portal hypertension decompensated cirrhosis that you probably were at the point of no return, but we'll see. But this I think is hopeful. What, what did you describe it as? What were the two phases again? Compensated cirrhosis. Oh, I mean, I mean, in terms of the treatment modalities. Oh, uh, maintenance versus acute. Oh, okay, okay. So I, I like that thinking, and I've heard that um, said in, in slightly different ways as well, like also induction maintenance as well, kind of inducing effect and kind of maintaining it. I think it makes a lot of sense and also kind of positions each of the categories, if you will, kind of distinctly and also from a pricing perspective and an access perspective. I, I think it kind of creates some separation there, which is good. And the the, the 21s are are sort of really interesting because, and, and, and by the way, like I, I sort of pegged the FGF19 to, to be sitting in that induction space as well, but at, at least from NGM that's that's not in the cards for the moment. But the FGF21s are kind of super interesting because of their profile. I mean, it has a lot of those pleiotropic effects that that we want to see, presumably, from a maintenance compound as well. Granted, yes, there's the injection element, which may, maybe maybe is not preferred. I'll, I can't really speak to that. But small weight loss signal, um, you're, seeing, you're seeing glycemic improvement, you're seeing lipid improvement, including the triglycerides and things like that. So seemingly, it's kind of interesting where it has the potential to straddle. And it would be interesting to see when we, when we start to see combos coming further on or this combination of you suggested of induction and, and maintenance with say a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 afterwards or a thyroid beta, like you said, what would happen in terms of the overall net of efficacy? I'd like to see stuff like that move forward at some point and some collaborations occurring in the field. I think things are quite siloed right now, but with some of these early benefits and some of these early victories, I, I hope that the field starts to kind of you know, at least pursue, if relevant, some of these collaborations to, to test out some of these strategies. Are there any presentations directly about diagnostics or that indirectly bear on the shape of where diagnostics are likely to go that you've been keeping an eye on in this meeting? Or interested in? So I always focused my attention, and not not to say I, I'm not interested in uh, kind of pure diagnostic presentations and posters and things of that nature. But where I'm trying to, to focus my attention is more so looking at how different biomarkers, diagnostics, could give you an early look at efficacy, prediction of response, things of this nature. So I'm I'm looking at some work. Granted, it's it's not using ultra modern kind of diagnostics, but some of this work coming out of of, of Intercept. Which looking at other ways to look at subpopulation, whether certain changes early on are predictive of response down the road. I can't, I can't recall if Madrigal has posters like that, but they've been doing quite a bit of work looking at PDFF and other modalities in combination in, in the same way. I think that's that's where a lot of innovation can take place. And so when I think about biomarkers,
biomarkers, I always think about them sort of in context to to drug development and what else can we gleam from the biology that could, you know, teach us something about how the disease is moving and what markers could truly be predictive of response. So far, what we know is that you really can't focus on one thing. So if you you, you can take your favorite, right? You can look at uh, some people have made the comment around ALT, seven, seven unit reduction is predictive. Once again, in the context of an FXR agonist, Madrigal has shown very beautifully certain reductions in PDFF as well as Akira and others with histological and biochemical response. But generally, you have to kind of look at uh, two, three, four of these markers and seeing how they're all moving. And that gives you a very high confidence of what's happening downstream, a much higher confidence rather. And that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm looking at. So, and this data is coming generally from like the thyroid class. I, I, I want to see if Akira is doing this for the responders for cirrhosis. I mean, so like some of these trial readouts that I mentioned, I'm, I'm, I have dual interest. Part of it's the efficacy, but also if it's the biomarker data within it that I think is very, very impactful to look at. So that's interesting. Um, as I was listening to you, my mind completely drifted. And I'll tell you where it drifted to and, and why. It drifted to the idea that I'm getting up at two o'clock in the morning on Friday morning to go to a Friday morning session over there because I want to hear a paper at 8 a.m. local about insulin resistance and its impact on disease. I want to hear it because in my mind, the gateway to fast adoption of non-invasive testing is going to be to understand where patients that have both diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and NASH are in the highest risk category for cardiovascular and other events. And I think that path is going to run to some degree through insulin resistance. I'm wondering whether you think there's a commercial place for that in the non-invasive testing space right now and how you see that develop and can it develop fully even before drugs get to market? I guess the three questions at once. I think it's a very astute observation. And for any for anybody out there that's doing development of diagnostics or kind of building a diagnostic strategy, I think you, you really should be beginning. Well, let me let me take a step back. One of the biggest problems in diagnostics in general, and you can say about biomarkers in general, is people don't define the, the use population. Like that, that's always sort of an afterthought. So it's very, very critical that you define exactly who this test is intended to be used on and who it should not be used on. And I, and I think that discipline is often lost. And the population that you just mentioned is, I believe, the population to focus on near term. Forget about drugs being available. I think this is the way that guidelines are going to be written, the way the guidelines are shifting, particularly. And th- there's already groundwork for that in the current guidelines where they don't ask that we screen all individuals with, with type 2 diabetes, as an example. Actually, the, the, the two populations are actually MET syndrome, which is just high metabolic burden, and then type 2 diabetes, which is kind of one kind of severe manifestation, right? So so they're, they're not so dissimilar, these two groups. Very, very well defined. And the guidelines today say, well, if you have clinical suspicion of advanced fibrosis, you, you should kind of dig deeper into this population. I'm paraphrasing. And I think that it's going to shift very close near term towards actively identifying screening. I don't want to use the wrong word in this population. And that's where it's going to start. So I think there's a real opportunity to develop clear data, clear guidelines, uh, meaning algorithms, diagnostic algorithms, and supportive evidence to, to go after this population and, and show that there, there is significant clinical performance and benefit and, and kind of how this could impact care. Yeah, I think, and cobbling the drugs that we have today, right? I mean, if you knew that insulin resistance in and of itself was an issue, or that there were a couple of markers for MET syndrome that you wanted to look at, you would treat patients differently. You're 100% correct. I mean, uh, it's it's sort of puzzling that sometimes we forget that there are therapies today. We, we can argue about how good they are. I mean, that's that's fine, but but they, they do exist. And so even you, when you take a look at things like pioglitazone, which we know does impact NASH, and in some studies have shown impacting fibrosis, 
fibrosis. You don't want to give that to everybody, right? I mean, there is a benefit risk of, of going that route. And we know some of the, the effects of in that compound, the, the gamma effect in that compound. And so therefore, you want to be able to confidently have that conversation, know the risk of your patient, and therefore make that informed decision. And so, you know, there, there is a need to evaluate and work up patients, even if the course of action is an intense lifestyle intervention program or existing therapies. You, you want to know that the person, you're treating them in the appropriate way, given their risk, their risk profile. Even today. Even today. So in that context, Ian Rowe, who does things like this, went and found a poster that he'll be talking about, I think, on Friday about canagliflozin, the SGLT2s. There are, I don't see there are any SGLT2 presentations in this meeting. I missed it if there were, but this is a poster he went and found and wants to talk about. How do you see that changing the landscape for NASH, specifically for NASH diagnostics and treatment, even in advance of drugs and then after drugs? Drugs like that and drugs like the GL, forget about the high-dose GLP-1s, but just the oral GLP-1 or, or the GLP-1 and the SGLT2, I think these things immediately bring endocrinologists to the table because now there is something that they can do for their patients differentially based on that knowledge of whether they have a certain level of, of NASH and fibrosis. From a diagnostic perspective, those things that are influxing into the market or that, that use, that change in use, will lead to an increase in, in awareness, and it will certainly lead to an increased use of diagnostic technologies, see of them, depending on the, the, the clinic, and bring endos to the table. And I think now you'll begin to see far more collaboration, I believe, between that population and gastroenterologists and hepatologists where, you know, a subset move on who need that kind of highly specialized liver care, but but a lot can be managed within the endocrinology space. And that then has a chance to work its way backwards and kind of be more engaging to, to primary care as well. So interestingly enough, thinking about it, Louise Campbell jumped on a session for Friday that focuses on primary care in a symposium session. Before you see a paper or before you see a presentation, just based on the work that you've done and things you know, what do you think it will take to bring primary care to be more interested in this disease? And what kind of time window would you guess we're looking at? And what could show up at a meeting like this that would speed that curve? I should be asking you three, three questions at once, please forgive, but go ahead. Already today, so this is not my opinion. This is this is kind of like what we know from, from the work that we've done. There are already primary care physicians today that act, we can call them HEP-like, GI-like, they, 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 they do exist. There's a small subset, I think, if you look at the entire primary care population, I can't recall off the top of my head how big how big that is. It's a it's a small percentage, maybe 5%, 10% of, of that entire pie, where, where these physicians are already working up patients, doing differential diagnosis, understanding a risk of fatty liver, and then kind of going on, and even using non-invasive blood-based testing. And I can't recall if they're using fiber scan but if they're not using fiber scan, they're certainly referring for fiber scan. So we know that the, the, these people exist. It would be interesting to understand what led those physicians to take on that mantle and, and be those champions. We haven't had a chance to really dig into that, but we know that, that that small pie is growing. And I think the reason why you don't see more of them is because these physicians have taken the time, maybe because of their, their caseload, their burden, to develop algorithms and develop methodologies for in, in integrating this thinking into the into their practice, maybe because they're seeing a high volume of, of patients. But if you look at guidelines in general, and you look at uh, the 
way that things are built, there there are no specifics today. So l- let's say you're a physician and you're interested, you're a primary care physician, you're interested in working up your patient. I know you're not going to sit around and read a thousand publications, right? Maybe you don't even have time to read a dozen publications. And you look at the guidelines and they kind of give you very like generic information. Oh yeah, you can use this and you can use this and you can use this and you should look for this. And this is a differential and so on and so forth. It's not actionable. And I think because of that, more people are not getting engaged. That's my, that's just my two cents. The only reason I say drugs, and, and that doesn't have to be brand new drugs. That could even be like, like you mentioned, Roger, like SGLT2s and other things. As those things get into care and that triggers changes in guidelines, I hope that it forces more specificity in the workup. Um, and I think that will be a catalyst to bring to bring the primary. So at the, at the rate that we're seeing things happen today, I don't see primary care being highly involved for another five years plus, to be honest. Okay, that's fair. So uh, first of all, anybody interested in this topic, the session that Louise is going to be covering a paper in is at 10 o'clock on Friday morning, you know, Central European time. And it's about liver health and primary care. And it's looked at from several different angles, starting with what looks like probably a survey presentation about what does primary care think about liver health today. My guess would be that it's not the busiest doctors, but that, in fact, it is not going to be the busiest doctors. Let me make that a more emphatic negative, because if you're really busy, you probably don't have time to think yeah. that, it, that it will be primary care doctors that have a commitment maybe to wellness or who are kind of pseudo-bariatricians or, or pseudo-diabetologists, but in some way, shape or form, touch a piece of the metabolic process, either through passion or through um, where their practice is gone. And that this is the next logical step for them to go. I'm, I'm guessing. Stone Cold guessed, but I did do 30 years of marketing research, which sometimes feels like I did time, but sometimes it feels like I learned things. What would you expect to be the moment where you're most likely to have an aha in the things that you've looked at? And it could be a fruxifermin where you started, or it could be something completely different, but just curious. You know, if I took a lesson out of the Global Nash, and I realize this is a different conference than Global Nash, I'm not saying that they're equivalent, but there are talks that I attended for the, so I'm I'm known to kind of attend a lot of things, and I kind of jump in and jump out, even things that I didn't plan for, just based on kind of, at the time, what's interesting. And the one thing that the Global Nash thing kind of reminded me of is is sometimes that talk that you did not plan to attend and you had you had no even inkling that it was a relevance that ended up spurring a lot of thinking you know and so I think going into it I'm going to say DFGF 21 by Akira that that's kind of where my mind is at because that's that's a very kind of clearly impactful study and I want to see that data but I'm I'm pretty sure if you ask me the same question after the conference it's going to be a very different answer just because that that's that's what's happened yeah i didn't expect in the previous series of conferences or the previous conference to um think so deeply about nutrition and and kind of uh, compositional changes in the body with regards to, to some of these like weight loss changes but that that's still actually i think about even even now so uh, i think something similar would be the case so i i don't want to i don't want to predict but i want to have an open mind and i want to kind of see what shakes out but it's it's generally a, a very good conference and if you can if you can get up and unfortunately you know we're not traveling but if you can get up early enough to see some of these talks there's some phenomenal talks interspersed yes some early some very early i agree with that one of the general session papers from the first session that might fit the bill you're talking about i'm sorry to listeners because i talked about this actually i talked about this with dr burgos as you can hear this twice on this episode there's a paper on um food insecurity and liver disease which 
Well, you're nodding your head. Uh, comment. <laughs> it's like you know, do you do you want to fix the symptom or do you want to fix the problem? You know, kind of a thing. Well, anyway, I'll let you finish. And no, no, I'll... no, no. I, look, I think you're in the right. I think that's the right question. Uh, the the point is though that it's just logical. If people are food insecure, they probably don't have a lot of money. So what they're simply grabbing for is calories. And the easiest calories to access are the calories that are most likely to cause problems with your liver. Yep, 100%. So we need the um, courage in a political environment that doesn't necessarily respond well to this kind of position to stand up and say that we're now not only costing the health system money through how we manage our health system, at least here in the States, but we're also costing health systems all around the world money as we move towards less egalitarian, more discriminatory postures that make more people food insecure. Sometimes, you know, some of these problems are so big that you have analysis paralysis. Or you don't even know where to begin, you know, but but I really do think, I mean, when, whenever in doubt, I, I kind of had this philosophy, whenever in doubt, you know, like you're all, like you yourself, you are a, you are a patient, you yourself are a patient, you yourself, right, are, you have a family and, and you, you think about these things. If, if I go to, and I, and I always think about as a consumer, you know, I, I go to the store, I'm very fortunate. I can, I can get not any, but I can get a lot of groceries that, that are, are good and good food and things like that. But if you go to the store, the most affordable things are all the highly processed, uh, refined sugar beverages, etc. Right. So, so if you're if you're if you don't have economic means, you're kind of hosed, and that's where it all begins. And then, and by the way, let's not also think about the other element of it, which is if you if you have economic shortcomings you're stressed beyond, beyond, right? Because you're always worried about the next paycheck, the, the next um, kind of expense that you have, God forbid you have uh, uh, unexplained expenses and medical issues and stuff like that. And so these things do spiral horrible things. And, and if, if and I'm not, and I'm, by the way, I'm not advocating that we take all drug money and we, we spend it on, on society, but if we had taken all of, you know, a large fraction of the, the money that we spent on Nash development and, and other diseases, and we'd put it back into society, society and trying to tackle some of these problems, where would we be? Of course, we can't, we can't say those things because it's kind of in the past. With, with all of this said, drug development needs to occur. There are populations that do exist where drugs are sorely needed, even in NASH. And, and because some of these people have genetic alterations, they have other, other factors that are influencing the progression of their disease or the speed of their disease. So there needs to be viable therapeutics that, that can help be part of the answer for those individuals. But when you take a step back, there are major societal changes, infrastructure changes that need to occur at the policy level that will that will benefit many of us. And that's not just a U.S. thing. That's a global thing. So th this is just as critical, but it, it sometimes just doesn't get eyes on it that other things do, uh, which is unfortunate. So, Sunil, thanks. This has been a great half hour. And every time I talk to you, my mind stretches, which is always a good thing. <laughs> It, Sorry about that. No, 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 no. I could, I could, I could, I could use more people to help me do that. Thank you very much again, and uh, enjoy the conference. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Likewise. Thank you so much. Sure. Bye bye now. Finally, Donna Cryer, president and CEO of the Global Liver Institute, considers the agenda both as patient advocate and patient. So the third participant in today's pre-ILC podcast is Donna Cryer, who you guys know well because she is a semi-regular member of the band, and things always go better when she's here. I've told her that before. Good afternoon, Donna. How are you? 
Hello, Roger. It's great to be here. So we've had Dr. Berg talk about from the Secretary General perspective, and we've had Sunil come on and talk about if you were commercial, how would you look at this meeting? So let's take a look through the patient advocate window. When you look at the agenda and everything about the meeting, what stands out to you as being particularly important for patients and advocates? Well, I I think I do have to just get out of my system. That's like everybody else. I, I do wish I was in a European city to attend, and I look forward to that happening next year. But I I think that for the second year of doing a a digital European liver meeting, this is really an exceptional and exciting thing that they have put together. From the very first description of it as a multidisciplinary meeting, you recognize it's different. And so from a patient and patient advocacy perspective, as well as a nurse or nurse practitioner or all the people that will frankly will, will need to be able to address NAFLD and NASH, as well as other liver diseases, certainly, but in particular, NAFLD and NASH, you feel welcomed. You feel invited in. You feel like they want and value you as part of the meeting. And so that shift in culture in hepatology is just wonderful to see. And I, I give a lot of credit and accolades to, to the EASL governing board for that. I think the arrangement of lunches, of think tanks, of meet the experts, of e-posters, and as well as formal sessions means that from a patient or or, or leader of a patient advocacy organization, and a lot of my team from the Global Liver Institute will, will be attending virtually. But there's a little something for everyone. Um, and there's a little something for your learning style or your time zones. And uh, there is certainly something different for your engagement dial uh, and whether you're looking at the research aspects of it with the research think tanks, I think are so exciting to just really hearing and understanding the, the latest science as it is June 2021, so that you know what to expect in the pipeline as, as we await for and, and hope for, for treatments, that will all be there. But there are two specific areas of emphasis that as a, as a patient, I'm, I'm truly excited about. And uh, those are emphasis on non-invasive diagnostics carried throughout multiple sessions, multiple papers, but you really see a, a shift in emphasis in non-invasive diagnostics. And as we get closer and closer, and, and hopefully our, our International NASH Day helped a lot uh, with to bring us closer to conversations with payers, with other stakeholders who have not been in this tent, gaining clarity on and consensus around how we use non-invasive diagnostics, moving from if we use them, <laughs> do we use them, but how we use them in research and clinical care is a really exciting thing to be and I think is completely necessary if we are going to scale up identification and linkage of care for NASH patients and and move to management and position for for when there is a NASH-specific therapy approved in in Europe. I also think that the lifestyle and the liver, the the fact that that is an entire postgraduate session but also carry through throughout the meeting um, and all of the, a lot of the uh, metabolism, liver and toxicity sessions address lifestyle, diet, movement. And, and we have had, we, the Global Liver Institute have had a lot of sessions and conversations with researchers in the U.S. and Europe around what are the research gaps in exercise for NASH patients? What type? Moving towards what body composition? We just launched a NutriStyle app for 
nutrition guidance to help make better decisions in diet and and really you know work with dietitians to think through what is the what are the food choices I don't like to use the word diet what are the food choices for liver patients but to have the research background for that and to have that not as some independent free floating concept or entity but as an it recognized as an integral part of NAFLD and NASH management I think is really important so the fact that they're approaching it as lifestyle and the liver is just wonderful I couldn't uh, you know just applause applause to easel for that so those are those are my uh, those are my initial thoughts, and then a couple of sessions that really bring that through, and that I am excited about attending, even if they're in the middle of the night for me here in Washington D.C. This was so much easier when I was in Paris. <laughs> so I'm getting up at two for a two o'clock talk. Yes, exactly. And Michelle Long, who's going to be on program, is running a session at four in the morning tomorrow. And after she agreed to co-chair the session, they reached back and said, you realize this is four in the morning, right? Well, you know, maybe maybe it'll take the note from uh, from GLI and International Nash Day, where we started our program in uh, in European time, but then we did encore presentations for the benefit of people on the, on the East Coast of the United States and, and others to try to meet as many time zones as possible. And so this content and these speakers are certainly worth a few nights sleeplessness for, but I'll just pass that note along that perhaps it's, uh, it can be done if we go digital or hybrid, hopefully just hybrid next time. But uh, I'll be getting up early for the EASL ESEASD, uh, so the diabetes uh, session on NAFLD management and a multidisciplinary team. So both our U.S. NASH action plan and the Wilton Park NASH plan and assessment of, of, you know, of which we are very much aligned, both I identified having a multidisciplinary team, either located, co-located all together, or at least, uh, you know, virtually coordinated so that a patient could be able to address certainly the hepatic manifestations, you know, NASH, but also make sure that their hypertension, their high cholesterol, their diabetes, their obesity, their have excess weight um, or, or obese are all addressed. In, in the way that is as as efficient for the clinical workflow, certainly, but is the reduces the patient burden as well. So I'm really excited, and that's shared by um, Frank Tock and Michelle Roden. But it includes physicians from Germany, France, Italy, the UK, and Finland. So I think that's just going to be amazing to look at how this concept plays out across those different healthcare systems, payment systems, cultural environments. And sets of medical practice. So I, I will be really looking forward to that session. And then certainly the, the second is the easel WHO symposia and the interface between non-communicable diseases and liver disease. Many liver diseases like NASH are non-communicable unless you sort of talk about, uh, you know, your environment and your friends, because it does seem like eating habits do spread uh, amongst your family and, and friends. It seems there's some, uh, some literature to support that. But we so appreciated how WHO embrace the NASH patient community and GLI and International NASH Day. And so their participation with EASL in this symposium, I think, is a huge step forward for the field for all liver diseases, really. But for NASH in, in particular, which is so ripe to be and appropriate to be positioned as a public health issue. So to have the WHO recognition of that and partnership in, in this symposium and, and hopefully ongoing is so important. And so that session is is chaired by uh, Karina Ferreira-Borges.
Lopez from the Russian Federation and Peter Jepsen from Denmark. And it goes into to, you know, to various components of thinking of that. One thing, looking at this as an American patient and patient advocate, is the discussion of universal coverage and evolving agenda. And so I'm going to be listening for, is universal coverage the necessary predicate to being able to make this happen? Or can it work even in the system, or I, you know, I'll use air quotes on a podcast, but system as fragmented as what we find here in the United States, clinical fragmentation, payment fragmentation. And so that was something that just that particular term, you know, caught my eye in terms of what I need to need to listen for. I'm so excited that our friend from WHO, Kremlin Wigram Singh, is going to be presenting on obesity and activity. They're also going to be talking about in that same session about, you know, the impact on COVID, on people's alcohol consumption and their other habits. You know, we've spent, you know, many a GLI live talking about the impact of COVID on liver patients and liver disease and how, for the most part, we are not coming out better, but much worse. And then what are the economic costs of that? And so I think that's going to be a really useful session, not just interesting session, but a really useful session for other people. I'm thinking of a couple of other presentations throughout this meeting that have gotten my attention and relate, I think, meaningfully to what you're talking about. So for example, tomorrow in the first general session, there's a talk that I was delighted to see and didn't expect to see when I first looked at the agenda with the title, Food Insecurity is Associated with All-Cause Mortality in U.S. Adults with Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease and Advanced Fibrosis from Ani Kardashian. I don't think that the title is a surprise. But the fact of it in this meeting is a surprise. It's wonderful. Fantastic, isn't it? What they've done about multidisciplinary, I think that's interesting, Mm -hmm. is they've not only put a lot of sessions together about multidisciplinary, but they are actually framing talks in ways that are about multidisciplinary. So I'm going to get up at two o'clock in the morning and listen to a talk on insulin resistance tomorrow morning. Because while insulin resistance is important to hepatologists, it's much more important, I think, to endos and, and, and internists who've been thinking about it forever in the context of diabetes, but don't really know what it means in the context of the liver. Exactly. And it's certainly of interest to patients who are experiencing it and have been trying to get their doctors to work with them to address it. And so to be able to have more information, a certain set of questions is fantastic. I have, I sort of tease my doctor because I, you know, in the before times when we could travel, I would, you know, have the advantage of going to all these medical conferences, certainly all of the digestive and, and cardiometabolic and, and, and liver conferences. And so I would end up with more CME than they did. Sometimes I would have visits and ask before, I'm like, I'm about to go to this conference. What questions do you have? Like, if you're not able to go, let me go for you. And I would bring them back information and as well as certainly having sat in sessions like these, I would have different questions. And as a patient, you know, when I'm um, selecting a doctor, I, I do ask if they're comfortable with that because that is the type of patient I am. And so if they're not comfortable with learning along with me, then they're not the right fit. So I'm excited about this meeting as a patient and patient advocate of longstanding. And as a connoisseur of meetings in digestive disease, I think this is probably going to be one of the best. Agreed. So we will exit now because Donna and I, in our tradition, spent 10 minutes of our half hour chit-chatting and therefore only have <laughs> 17 minutes left for this tape. But that's fine. Maybe some of that will come up back when you come on, come back on Saturday. I look uh, forward to that. Okay. And thanks so much for being able to make the time. I know you've had a crazy couple of days and um, I'll see you Saturday. Okay. Thank you for your patience and persistence, Roger. Uh, you're worth it. Thanks. So there you have it. Three views of the program for Digital ILC 2021. 
one from a patient-patient advocate perspective, one from a commercial perspective, and one from an academic and leadership perspective. It is the multiple perspectives and the way that they are executed in the program that I think makes this meeting so fantastic. I hope you enjoy it half as much as I am certain I will, and I look forward to seeing you on the podcast later this week. Stay safe, surf on, bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.